As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what... They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, let us see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Leave your sight. Your faith healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was with He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of Sassinah. But Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I give back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man I seek and to save the lost. As Marilyn told us a little bit earlier, there are all sorts of world events happening around us that cause great concern. Floods and wars have forced a prioritized response. Who gets rescued first? When the August 31st deadline to evacuate Afghanistan was announced, people began jockeying for seats on the planes. And somebody had to decide if it was the the women, the children, the soldiers, or allies, the citizens, or the dignitaries. Who would get the limited seats? As floods devastated Tennessee, then Ida's waters fell all the way from Louisiana to New York. Emergency crews had to prioritize whom they could rescue and who would have to wait. As thousands fall prey to socialism and criminal activity of Central America and they flee for asylum at our southern borders. 
agencies triage who will be allowed through the gate. Who will be housed and who will be returned. Depending on who is asked, you will get very different perceptions of who should be helped first in all of these stories. Some of us want stimulus money to go to the unemployed. While others believe the economy will be boosted by giving something extra to the essential workers who have staffed the stores, the schools, and the clinics throughout the pandemic. Who gets the help? Who goes first? And our ideas of who is oppressed and who is privileged, who is the victim and who is the predator, vary greatly. And these differing ideas contribute to the social unrest that all of us detest. Much of our economic unrest has been fanned into flames where individuals believe that they are oppressed by those with privilege. As I grew up here in Kansas, then later moved to Oklahoma, I always thought that Labor Day was a celebration of all those who do honest labor for an honest wage. All those who contribute to the quality of life. It wasn't until I moved to a state in America's Rust Belt that I found out Labor Day was not a celebration of all labor. It was, as Amy informed us during the children's sermon, a celebration of organized labor. It was a celebration of the unions that stand up to the wealthy oppressors. See, instead of celebrating the the privilege that we have to contribute to our own livelihood, Labor Day was originally, and still is in some places, a demonstration against management, a demonstration against the ownership that says, we'll get ours. Well, depending upon your view of tomorrow's holiday, you may see yourself as honored because I labor. Or you may see yourself as oppressed by the man. We will see in the scriptures today that God's kingdom gives value and it offers salvation to both those who are well-esteemed and those who tend to be despised. While we have to prioritize a response, the scriptures tell us that God's grace is available to all, both the oppressed and the privileged. Well, since we will all admit that we don't see things the same, let me take just a few minutes to talk about the brokenness that has many different faces. Some of us have very different ideas of wealth. What defines rich in your mind? When you were a kid, 
you probably had some idea in your mind, that person is rich. If I could only have that, then I would be rich. What is that thing in your mind? Was it clothing? Was it cars? Was it their zip code? I remember envying the kids who could have their birthday party at the hamburger or the pizza restaurant. Those who went to a restaurant for a birthday party, boy, they were the rich kids. For you, was it some status symbol? I read this week of someone who thought a clear plexiglass backboard on the basketball goal was a sign of rich. Ooh, if I could only have that clear backboard, then we will be rich. When I was an early teen, we lived in an old two-story farmhouse that my father was remodeling. We were flipping houses before flipping houses was a cool thing to do. I, I later learned it's quite expensive to heat and cool an old farmhouse. Well, my dad, growing up and spending summers in the wheat fields south of Wichita, thought it was foolish to spend all that money to run an air conditioner in the house. So he made two decisions that made perfect sense in his head. Number one, we will crawl up into that hot attic. We will install an attic fan that can bring the cool night air through the house so that we can sleep at night. And during the day, rather than run that air conditioner, he bought a do-it-yourself above-ground swimming pool on clearance, and he and I installed the swimming pool in the backyard. Once we had that pool, some people thought we were rich. I later learned that some people in the church where my father was the preacher concluded that if the preacher has a swimming pool, he must be rich. And even though we qualified for the free and reduced lunches at school, we couldn't afford store-bought clothes at the beginning of school I just learned in recent years that my father never received a pay raise after the preacher had a swimming pool in his backyard. See, I, I don't regret my upbringing because I realize many of us have different ideas of what it means to be rich. And although we didn't have many of the uh, material abundances, we had each other. We had the stability of parents who loved each other and parents who did their best for us. In some, day, in some ways, the preacher's family really was rich. But there were also many forms of brokenness around us. You are aware of that person who is looked at differently because of a disability? One of my closest friends was advised to terminate a pregnancy. It's my friend and his wife. 
were advised to terminate her pregnancy because the doctors had identified a chromosomal abnormality and they said the baby will never live. And even if he does, he will have severe birth defects. But Paul and Michelle built a prayer team and Blake celebrated his 22nd birthday last Sunday without any birth defects. But I also have a deep affection for Joy, for Rick, for Ty, whom others would consider broken. But these three, even with their quote-unquote disabilities, bring great happiness to their families because of their different abilities. There is physical brokenness around us. There is relational brokenness around us. A couple weeks ago, I, I heard one of the questions on Family Feud was, how long is the average Hollywood marriage? Any ideas? What was the number one answer? Two years? Seven years? One year? The number one answer, according to their survey, was five years. The average married marriage in Hollywood is only five years. The vast abundance of inequities of life experiences can cause many of us to say, either I am the oppressed because I experience this form of brokenness, or we view ourselves, I'm the privileged because I don't bear any of those forms of brokenness. By now, many of you are beginning to wonder what everything I have, what everything I have said has to do with a wee little man in a tree. D.A. Carson is frequently cited as a source for a quote that I've heard in various settings. Carson says, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Fancy words that simply say, if you don't consider the verses before and the verses after, you're probably going to draw the wrong conclusion about the verses that you're looking at. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Uh, for example, following the Texas heartbeat bill decision, I read this week one person who wrote, literally, Biblically, life begins at first breath. And he used Genesis 2-7 as his proof. Genesis 2-7 says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. And because of that verse, we know that the Bible teaches life begins at our first breath. 
to, to come to this conclusion based on Adam alone and to totally ignore every other reference to pregnancy in the rest of the Bible is the worst example of proof text I've ever heard. This is even worse than telling someone to go out and hang himself because Judas hanged himself. And after all, the Bible says, whatever you're going to do, go out and do quickly. See, if we lift the text without the context, it simply becomes a proof text. Now, you will remember that the chapter and verse divisions actually did not appear till about the year 1500. As the printing press was invented, and there was now the opportunity for families to own their own copy of the scriptures rather than just the one that was chained to the altar in the city church, they came up with a system so that the different families could all be looking at the same words at the same time. And so it's unfortunate that chapter 19 divides the middle of today's story. And realize that was added later. That wasn't in the original. In the original, we start reading, in Jericho there was a blind man. And then we see, in Jericho there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now some of you are saying, isn't it Zacchaeus? I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Phonics worked for me. See, the story is both of these happen in Jericho, and I believe both stories are meant to be seen as one story, even though there's a chapter break there in the middle of them. Because both of these stories happen in Jericho, because both involve Jesus reaching out to someone whom the crowd would rather ignore. I think we need to view both of these stories as one sermon. First, we see a man who is down and out. The man who is blind and begging in Jericho. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably thought of Joshua and his seven daily tours when you hear Jericho. If you lived in the Middle East today, you would see Jericho in the middle, which is right on the main trade path between Amman, Jordan, and Jerusalem. And because it was on this main trade path, right in this fertile valley of the river, it became kind of an oasis between the two. If you lived there today, you would realize that the occupied West Bank is this big backwards B, with Jerusalem being the bubble between the two parts. And Jericho was closest to that narrow part of the backwards B. The new Jericho, because the Old Testament spoke of an old Jericho. What happened to the old Jericho? The walls came tumbling down. So the Old Testament old Jericho can still be discovered through archaeology, but rather than rebuild old Jericho, they just moved a mile to the south 
Kind of like um, Strong City and Cottonwood Falls. And so they go a mile to the south and said, let's build new Jericho. And so new Jericho is what existed in the time of Jesus. It was about 17 miles downhill from Jerusalem. 17 miles was about a, a good hard day's journey. And Jesus had come down the river. He was about to move towards Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. So before he begins that one hard day of an uphill climb, he decides to spend some time in Jericho. See, if you lived in Jericho in Jesus' day, you would have had a very different stereotype. Because this man was blind and begging in Jericho, Jericho was a place that had a lush location on the trade route. There was a lot of wealth that moved through that territory. Herod had a palace built in Jericho, so it was a government site as well. So you can imagine if this is a major trade route, if the government has a garrison there, it's probably a pretty wealthy community. If you've got to be a blind beggar, this is a good place to be a beggar. I learned many years ago that the best secondhand shops are close to where the wealthy people live. A thrift store in Johnson County or close to the Magnificent Mile in Chicago is a much better thrift store than the etc. shop in Hillsborough, Kansas. And this blind beggar had learned the same thing. If I've got to beg, I might as well do it where the wealthy people live. So those who have studied history says... As far as being a blind beggar, this blind beggar probably had it pretty good compared to other blind beggars. He wasn't lame like the other people who had to be carried to the, get, to the gate to do their begging. Yet he knew that he was bound in his current condition. And the only way out of that lot in life would be to receive his sight. Jesus was there, and he says, Oh, son of David, he acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah come to earth. And he asked the Messiah come to earth, Would you be merciful to me? And Jesus asked him, Yeah, I'll I'll give you mercy. What do you want? And he said, The only way I'm ever going to get out of this situation is if the Messiah does what only he can do and gives me my sight. You know, I kind of think that anyone who drives on Highway 50 these days is likely to see plenty of SG plates and plenty of JO plates on the cars that speed past us. Um, it, It may help for us to think of Jericho? Maybe think if you're traveling on your way to Wichita and you have to make a layover in Overland Park, that's what Jesus is doing in Jericho. 
Jericho was the Johnson County on the way to the city. And in this setting, this man makes a plea for mercy. He realized sight was not something he could do for himself. It was not something that anybody else could do for him. There was no government program that he could apply for. His only hope was mercy from the one that he believed to be the promised Messiah. And Jesus responds by healing the man, which leads many to give God glory. The very one whom they were just hushing. Shh, don't bother him. You're, you're, you're such a bother. Shh, be quiet. That very one was the cause for the whole crowd to say, God's mercy reaches even the unlikely. See, he was down and out, but he needed God's mercy. And from down and out in Jericho, the next story picks up in the very same town with someone who is not down and out, but someone who is up and he's also out. You know, as soon as we heard the name Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus, many of us heard a tune in our heads. You want to sing it with me? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. But before his height is ever mentioned, Luke describes this man. And Luke describes him not as a wee little man, if we were going to see Luke's description, we would sing, Zacchaeus was a rich, powerful man, and a rich, powerful man was he. See, Zacchaeus was up. He was rich. He was powerful. He was influential. But he was still out of the circle. Everyone said, oh, he's a tax collector. He must be a sinner. They had no room in their circle of acceptance for that man who was up and out. Because while the other man was poor and blind and begging in Jericho, Zacchaeus was collecting taxes in Jericho. Well, if the blind man knew that Jericho was wealthy and a good place to beg, you can be sure that the revenue department also was fully staffed to get their full share. And as the chief tax collector, as he is described, Zacchaeus probably did not deal with people directly. He supervised a staff, and then he collected his portion from what they collected from the people, much like a corporate sales manager would do today. And as an overseer of wealthy employees, he had amassed his own sizable wealth. So the description that we see in this paragraph is not focused upon the wee little man. It's focused solely upon his occupation, his wealth, and then his stature. When the crowd looked at Zacchaeus, they saw someone who was rich, someone who was connected, someone who was short, but someone that they had no interest in being friends with him. 
But Jesus saw something different. When Jesus looked at rich Zacchaeus, Jesus says, you know, he's got so much money, it would not be an imposition at all if I invite myself to his house along with my disciples who are traveling with me. He's got that big house. He's got lots of money. It would not be a problem at all for him to host us for an evening so that we can rest before making that 17-mile uphill journey to Jerusalem tomorrow. And while a greedy man would have been hesitant to respond, if Jesus says, "Um, Zacchaeus, can I come to your house? A greedy man would say, if I'm going to feed 13 people, you know how many jars of peanut butter it's going to take to make peanut butter and jelly for 13 people? But that wasn't his response. When Jesus says, Zacchaeus, can I come to your house? Zacchaeus says, what? You want to come to my house? Oh, I'd love to have you at my house, Jesus. Bring your disciples with. Come on over. As a matter of fact, I am overflowing with joy to be able to have you in my house. To the ruler last week, in our previous verses... His wealth was the one thing that kept him from following Jesus. But to Zach, his wealth is the one thing that he can offer to serve the king. His wealth is what he has to serve and to meet the needs of others. The rest of the people thought he was a scoundrel. I can't believe Jesus is going to his house, he's a sinner. And Zach says, Jesus, if I find out I've defrauded somebody, I pay him back four times over. And I give half of what I have to to help other people. What more can I do to be a good person? They hate me simply because I'm a, a revenuer. But I try to be compassionate towards others. And even though I'm trying to use my wealth wisely and I'm trying to be a blessing to others, they all hate me. They despise me. The community has no room for me because I think I'm just that rich guy up on the hill. But you, Jesus, you're different. You see me as someone who can participate in your kingdom. And we see in verses 7 through 9 that salvation, which Jesus says came to Zacchaeus' house, changes us. Now many of you see this assertion, salvation changes us, and you think I'm going to talk about the change that happened in Zacchaeus. I'm not sure that there was a change that happened in Zacchaeus. You know, many of us uh, assume that there was a confrontation of sin between verses 7 and 9, so that Zacchaeus repented of his greed and decided to become generous. But that's not what the verb tenses say, is it? I believe as soon as they said, look at that, he's going into the house of that sinner... Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and says, I don't know why they hate me so much. I'm I'm already giving away half of what I own. 
I already go beyond the laws to try and make things right if I accidentally offend another person. I think the change that happens is not in Zacchaeus. The change that happens is in the crowd and their attitude towards Zacchaeus. See, the traditional understanding of verse 8 is based upon some huge assumptions. We assume that Jesus confronts Zac, and his words in verse 8 are a commitment to a new behavior. But read the verses. Zacchaeus says, I already do these things. So what is the point of the story if it is not an assumed confrontation of Zach, but it's an indictment of the crowd? As a wealthy man, he had lots of room in his home, and Jesus wants to give his disciples a full rest before they begin the 17-mile uphill climb to Jerusalem. So Jesus invites himself and his disciples to be house guests of this man. Jesus did not see Zach's wealth as a sign that he was a sinner. Jesus saw his wealth as a resource to be used for the family. That's why Jesus says he also is a son of Abraham. I I think the key of this story is that the crowd got it wrong two times. To the oppressed beggar, they said, quit making so much noise, you're bothering Jesus. To the down and out, they said, we've got no patience for you. To the up and out, they said, if you have wealth, you must be a scoundrel. So we've got no patience for you either. I think the point of this story is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Whether they're down and out or up or up and out, Jesus came to redeem those who are overlooked. And the question for us this morning is, are we going to be more like Jesus? Are we going to extend mercy to the down and out? Is there room in our worldview to extend mercy to those who are up and out? Do we seek to see the lost saved? Are we too quick to jump to conclusions about people who we think are important to God? Are we too quick to jump to conclusions about those that we think are worth mercy? If God were to enlarge your compassion today to make you a messenger of mercy, who might be that person that you're tempted to overlook? Is it the child of chapter 18, whom we don't want to wait for them to mature? Is it the disabled person who just seems to get in the way? Is it the one that we think, you know, whatever they're able to contribute, it's just not going to be worth the effort to get them there? Is it the one who's in a different social class from us? Do we conclude, well, if he or she isn't like me, it must be because of some moral deficiency. Either 
they don't work hard enough or they're greedy or if they're in a different class than me, that there must be something morally missing in their life. And Jesus said to the crowd, I've come to seek and to save, whether they're down and out or up and out. Now, I'm about to leave preaching and going to meddling, so if you've got a pair of steel toe boots, you might want to put them on. Might God be calling you to reach out with mercy to that person who thinks different from you about COVID? Can you show mercy to that person who has given in to the political lie? Can you show mercy to that person who prefers naturopathy to increase a natural immune response? Are we like the crowd and we jump to conclusions too quick? Or are we like Jesus who extends mercy to those who are outside of the circle that we would think is acceptable behavior. See, Jesus viewed both the blind beggar and wealthy Zacchaeus different than the crowd viewed them. And he gave mercy and dignity to each of them. And may that be said of us, that we are here to seek and to save the lost. Our final song is a hymn that's actually not in our hymn books, but I know we have sung it at least once before. I invite you to 